guys. Thank you, Chris, for that. I know you guys are looking at me right now, and you're like, how did the kicker tackle a Navy SEAL vet? Um, I didn't play. Uh, I wasn't the kicker, so that, that was one thing. But I, I don't look intimidating. That's okay. Uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, right? Um, thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Uh, we are launching on September 18th. Uh, at the Hazelwood Elementary School in Waynesville. Uh, so if you guys uh, are, are uh, free on that day, which you shouldn't be, um, we would love to see you. Uh, maybe invite your friends to go over there if they live in Waynesville. Um, just to tell you a little bit more about myself so you guys can get to know me a little bit. Um, I, I have been married to my wife, Maddie, uh, for it'll be nine years in October. Uh, I know you're looking at me and you're like, how can an 18-year-old be married for nine years? Um, well, it can happen, I promise. Uh, but we've been married for nine years, and uh, just to kind of let you in on, on who we are, you know, trying to think about how, how to describe who we are. So my wife, her name is Madeline Audra. First name Madeline, middle name Audra. Um, Audra, the, the name, means noble. And Madeline means tower of strength. So noble, tower of strength. Uh, our last name is Medford. Medford, um, last names, you know, you can have, like if your last name is Smith, you probably come from uh, people who were Smiths. If your last name is Farmer, you probably came from people who were farmers. Uh, Medford, it kind of denotes a place. So Medfords are the people in the meadow near the Ford. Meadow Ford, and then that just gets smashed together. Medford. And then Brody is Gaelic for ditch. So I'm ditch down by the meadow Ford, and my wife is this noble tower of strength, and that could not more aptly describe who we are as human beings. So now that you know who we are, um, we, we did serve overseas. We're, we were in Italy for uh, almost three years. We were working with refugees from uh, uh, North Africa, Middle East, the Horn of Africa, uh, people coming in, uh, trying to seek asylum in Europe. And uh, we were there to, to meet them with open arms and with the gospel. And, and we had uh, the, our kind of mission, our, our vision, was to see them come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, a lot of these people were coming from Muslim background countries. They have a really uh, big misunderstanding of who Jesus is. So we wanted to share with them the good news that Jesus had come to save them, that he was Lord of their life. Uh, we wanted to disciple them into that knowledge. We wanted to see them grow into that. And then we would pray with them and kind of cast this vision over them of like, well, what would it look like for you to one day be able to go back to your homeland, a place where you know the culture, a place where you know the language, a place where you know the context. And yeah, it's going to be extremely difficult, but what would it look like if God kind of raised you up to go back and take this good news with you? So somewhere in kind of two and a half, three years of praying and casting this vision over other people, God started working in my life too. And he started asking me the same question, well, what if I've been raising you up over the last 15 years to go back to your hometown, a place where you know the culture, a place where you know the context, a place where you speak the language? You know, uh, if you're from a small town, you know that the language of small towns is like, well, it's, it's by the old Walmart. Who knows where the old Walmart is unless you've lived there your entire life? New people coming in don't know the old Walmart. But I'm going back to a place where I can speak the language. And so, in, in thinking about that, we, we have this kind of vision of, of we want to build people up in order to send them out. Building up people into the image of Christ and sending them out into the world as agents of change. And, and that's kind of our motto. We want to uh, be built to send. So when you think about the strategy of planting churches, you, you think about big cities, right? Cities, uh, it's very evident of like why you want to go to big cities. Big cities are built to receive. More, more people and more people are moving in every day. I think Charlotte nets like 50 new people a day. 
And so the strategy in going and planting a church in a place like that is obvious. You want to go to a place where a lot of people are because a lot of people need Jesus. But when you start to think about small towns, the strategy is not so obvious. I would say like half of my high school graduating class is gone. They've just moved out. They've, they've gone elsewhere. Uh, they've gone to pursue a career. They've gone to college. They, they, they've just moved. And so if there's this natural rhythm of releasing, we kind of think, well, what if we can capture that or utilize that for the sake of the gospel? What if we can build people up in order to send them out? And specifically, what we're praying for over these next five years is to see 100 people raised up and sent out. Raised up and sent out, just like Eden. Raised up and sent out. And that's crazy, and it is. It's absolutely absurd to have that big of a dream. But you guys are familiar with that. You're familiar with that because you know it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's what God can do through us. So, we do have a problem. Uh, our vision, as you can tell, is outpacing our resources. And I want to kind of invite you guys into that because you guys are part of the solution. And we know if God is calling us to go, then he is calling other people to send us. So uh, after the sermon today, I'll, I'll kind of share a little bit more about how you can do that. Um, let's open up our Bibles. We're going to jump into the sermon for today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at a few verses here. I just want to begin by kind of asking this question. Uh, have you ever been concerned about one's, what someone else thinks about you? Um, I think we all have, right? It's, it's kind of hardwired into us. We, we want people to think well of us. We want to make a good impression on people. We want people to kind of leave after they've met us and be like, I, I like that person. Um, so much of our thinking, so much of our mindset is kind of wrapped up into this idea, even if it's just subtle or kind of subconscious beneath the surface, it's there. And you're even more aware of it when you're embarrassed, right? A couple weeks ago, I was preaching at another partner church, and the second service, so you guys are lucky, uh, the second service, uh, my throat, you know, started to get a catch in it. <clears throat> and so I was trying not to clear my throat, and in trying to do that, you know, you kind of make it worse. And uh, my, my right eye, it started watering, just started watering, and then my right nostril just started running. Um, and so they had some water there for me, so I, I picked up the water, and I was preaching with the water, taking a sip like every half sentence. And so there was this one fateful moment, and I go to take a sip of water, and the water just spills all over my shirt. In that moment, you know what people are thinking about you. You are very aware of what people are thinking about you. Jesus speaks to this mindset in Matthew chapter 5, and he gives us a radically different way to live. So let me just read it for us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling us to live a life consumed by what others think. Not about you, but about God. Live so that others give glory to God. Live so that others, they, they see your life, they hear your word, they see your works, and all they can think about is God. This, in a word, is humility. People see the way you live, and they don't think about you at all. They give glory 
to your Father who is in heaven. If you live like that, it will change the way that you talk, it will change the way that you work, it will change your motives and your relationships and your home and your neighborhood and your workplace. So here's the big idea. Here's, here's the thing that I want you to take away from today. If nothing else happens, take this away. The way that we follow Jesus is to magnify God and not ourselves. To magnify God and not ourselves. So here's kind of the roadmap for today. We're, we're going to talk about salt, we're going to talk about light, and we're going to talk about so that, the purpose, right? Salt, light, so that. So look again at, at uh, chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You. That's what Jesus is saying. You. This is an emphatic you. He's talking to his disciples, his followers, those who follow him, those whom he has chosen, whom he has called out, who he has purchased and redeemed. And he says, you are. This is a, a statement of being, not of doing. This is something that is so intrinsic to who Jesus has saved you to be. This isn't something you earn. It's something that's bestowed. And in the bestowing, we become more and more and more like the thing that he has called us to be. So you are. You are the salt. The salt. Now salt, uh, it, it serves mainly to give flavor and to delay decay. That's its purpose. It's distinctive. You know when it's there and you know when it's not there. But it never is the main ingredient. Salt, it, it helps to accentuate the flavors of what's already there. And salt helps to slow down the death of, of things that are so naturally decaying. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. The earth. So not just the small geographical pocket, not just western North Carolina, not just Asheville, not just Waynesville, but a distinctive people across the face of the earth. So this, in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, this is kind of the beginning of Jesus' greatest sermon, the greatest hits that Jesus ever spoke. The sermon takes place in kind of three chapters here through the book of Matthew, and here's the whole point of what he's saying. Jesus is saying to his followers that they are to act as who they are, these called out ones who preserve and flavor the world. When I think about distinctiveness, Anytime I read these verses, I, I, this image of this one man pops in my head. His name is Rip Starnes. Um, actually, probably some of you know him, uh, which is a crazy thing. But Rip was just an incredible man of God. He, he helped to get the Baptist Children's Home in, in Western North Carolina started. Um, he, he led these evangelistic crusades. He, uh, one person came up to me after the first service and said, I actually was in his house, and he was discipling me when I was in middle school. And um, Rip was just an incredible man of God, and wherever he went, you could tell that something was different. Something was distinct about who he was. One of my favorite stories about my own life is uh, one summer I was, I was going to uh, this kind of leadership and discipleship training um, thing during college, and, and I wanted to, to go, but I needed to raise money to go. I needed to raise $2,400, so a lot of money to a college student. And so I, I, I knew that I was going to go talk to Rip and his wife, Miss Wanda, and, and so uh, they were encouragers to me and supporters of me, and so I knew it would kind of be kind of low-hanging fruit um, to, to go and chat with them. And so I went and spoke with them, and after I got done uh, kind of sharing the vision of what we would be doing, he said, yeah, Brody, we would love to support you. We're going to give you $200 to get you started. I said, that's incredible. You know, I left thinking, like, I've almost raised 10% of everything I need to raise in one visit. Like, this is going to be great. Three days later, I get this call from Rip, 
And uh, I answer the phone, and he just says, Brody, I felt so bad after you left. I wanted to do more, but we just, we just couldn't do more. And so I've gone and raised all the money for you. I have a check for you. Let me know where I can send it. That was the type of person Rip was, this distinctive flavor that when you look at him, you don't really see him. You wonder, what else is there? There's something more. That's what Jesus means by salt. And light is similar to it. So Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. Another emphatic you, another statement of being. It's parallel to this first statement that Jesus says, but this time Jesus says that his followers are the light. Now light, like salt, it affects its environment by being distinctive. The follower of Jesus who is visibly different from those around them will have an effect on them. You can't be next to light and not be affected. The follower of Jesus will give light to all, Philippians 2.15, because the Savior whom they reflect is the light of the world, John 8.12. And this is all just as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 that this role of a servant king would be the light to the nations. So when Jesus declares that his followers are the light of the world, he means that they, as recipients of this kingdom that he is bringing into the world, now represent him in the world as the truth of salvation, this light to the world, this good news that Jesus has come to save sinners. And when others observe a follower of Jesus' conduct, when they see what they do, they will know that the priorities of these people have changed. They're different. That before them, before these people, there's something of inestimable value, something that, that just gives light, something that shows something else off. And I, I think this is an important analogy. We are the light of the world like the moon is the light of the night. The moon reflects what the sun does. And so too, we reflect what the sun does. Jesus is the one who radiates, and we continually point others to him. We, we've been in Waynesville not too long, just a couple months, and the launch team has been moving up over the summer, and we've already been able to experience this in a cool kind of God way. Um, one of the guys on the launch team, he's, he's really outgoing. He loves to be out. He, he loves to get to know people. He's, he's just so amicable and fun and um, silly. So, you know, it, he, he's a good friend to have. And so he's been going to this coffee shop um, almost every day for the last, I don't know, two months. And so he's gotten to know all the employees. And uh, he, he got this message the other day um, from one of the employees that just said, you know what, there's something different about you. We have a lot of people, you know, that kind of come into this coffee shop. We have a lot of regulars that come into this coffee shop. But something about you is different. And then they said this. They said, it's like there's a light or something. How cool. How cool that God would use someone in such a way to point others to something greater. That's who a light is. And part of being a light is to shine. You are, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden, cannot be. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. The city on a hill cannot help but shed its light like a beacon to others. Its whole purpose is to light up the darkness. That's who it is. There's a, a man, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
I'm sure some of you know him. I'm sure some of you have read some biographies. Well, uh, Dietrich, he was born in Germany in 1906. And he was born into this spectacular family. His, his father was a genius. His mother was a genius. All his brothers and sisters, they were geniuses. They all married geniuses. So this whole family was just spectacular. Like one of his brothers, Friedrich, he was, uh, he was one of the guys who helped to split the atom with Albert Einstein. That's the kind of family that he was born into, and that's the kind of family that he grew up in. And at the age of 14, he kind of shocked everyone at the dinner table and said that he wanted to be a theologian when he grew up. Now his dad, being a scientist and somewhat of an agnostic, and uh, this kind of came as a shock, and he didn't think it was a great idea, but he had taught all of his kids to follow the facts, to think clearly, to speak clearly, and then to act on what you know. Basically, you, you couldn't say you believe something and not act on it. If you did, you were a liar or a hypocrite or a phony. or That's just not right. So both of his parents expected their children to live out life in this way. If you know it, live it. And so Dietrich, he got his doctorate of theology at the University of Berlin at the age of 21. And he was just an incredible man. He was a light in the midst of darkness. So... <laughs> He stood against everything that the Nazis and Hitler stood for. He's on record just two days after Hitler came into power, speaking on this idea of what it means to be a leader. And he, he was saying that what it means to be a true leader, a true leader is someone who submits to a higher authority. A true leader is someone who is a servant leader. He could see right through the charades that the Nazi propaganda was spitting out from the very beginning, and he continued to speak out against them and live out his faith to the very end. He was executed in a concentration camp on April 9, 1945, at the age of 39. And here's just one little quote that I want to read you. He said, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. See what he's saying? You couldn't be a light and not shine. You couldn't be a, a follower of Jesus and not follow. It just doesn't make any sense. So light, salt, so that. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, see your good works, and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that, so it's a purpose statement. Our purpose is to magnify God, not ourselves. When did you ever eat a gourmet meal, this wonderful, beautiful steak, and you say, oh my goodness, that salt was so good. Or when did you ever, if you've ever been traveling, when did you ever maybe go to Rome and you're standing there at night looking at the Colosseum and you just say, oh my goodness, these lights are so powerful. You don't do that, right? They accentuate what's already there. Our purpose as salt and light is to amplify. In doing that, we give glory to our Father in heaven. That's who we are, and that's what we do. But there's uh, a little thing, right? There, there's two types of magnification. One type is microscopic, and the other type is telescopic. So microscopes and telescopes. The one thing makes a small thing 
look much bigger than it actually is. And the other takes a really, really big thing and begins to make it, big, make it look as big as it actually is. We're not called to be microscopes. We're called to be telescopes. We're not called to be these sleazy con men who, who take this little product and try to blow it out of proportion and sell it to others. We're called to, to take this great, big, enormous God and begin to make him look as great as he actually is. And that's why David says in Psalm 69:30, he says, I will praise God's name with song and exalt him or praise him or magnify him with thanksgiving. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the salt of the earth, so be salty. You are the light of the world, so be bright, so that you may magnify the greatness of our God and not yourselves. But some of you don't feel very salty, though. Or if you feel salty, it's probably the other type of salty. Some of you don't feel very bright. Some of you feel enclosed in darkness. And this is the good news that I want to tell you. This is the gospel in, in a nutshell. This is the good news that Jesus came. He, we are, therefore we do. We are because Jesus has already done. I love what Elise was pointing to. Romans 6. 23, for the wages of sin is death. So what we earn for what we do is death. That's who we are. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he bestows this on us. He gives us this new identity. He says, this is who you are. So Jesus, the light of the world, he knew darkness for three days in order that we might see the light of day. And that's the beauty of the cross. He did the unthinkable. He took our place. We were supposed to be there. It wasn't supposed to be him. He bore our shame. He bore our sin. He took on God's wrath for us. He died so that we might live. And he calls to us, even today. He shines to us, even today. He lights up your world, even today. And if you haven't placed your faith in him, if you haven't take that, uh, taken that first step of baptism, today's your day. Talk to someone. If God is calling you, don't delay. Don't delay. So you might hear all of this, and you might think, like, well, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, let's magnify God. As new life, let's magnify God. Let's do that as, as individuals. Let's do that as a, as a corporate um, gathering here but why do we need to plant churches? <laughs> why? If you, haven't, if you haven't thought this, then someone has probably said this to you. Why plant a church when there are so many churches already? Why, why, do, why do we need a new church? Why, or we don't need a new church. What we need is the people here to go to the churches that we already have. That's what we need. So if that's you or someone you know, I just want to give you a few answers to that question. Why plant a church? So this is the first one. Church planting has always been the outworking of the Great Commission. Always. From the very beginning. Jesus, he, he, he said that all authority in heaven had been given to him, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
um, uh, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded. And this is exactly what we see Paul doing in Acts. He called groups of people together, not just to evangelize, not just to make new converts, but to grow into churches. And Paul told Titus, he said, I left you in Crete to appoint elders in all the towns, so to, to build churches. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, they appointed elders in every church. They grew churches. The goal wasn't just to evangelize, but to plant local churches so that they would continue to raise people up and send them out. So if we're going to make disciples of all nations, the main vehicle to do so is local churches. The church is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. Local churches matter. Secondly, planting new churches is strategic for reaching new peoples. Um, One author writes in this kind of book study on on new churches, church planting, that that one denomination had recently found that 80% of its new converts came to Christ in churches less than two years old. 80% in churches less than two years old. So why? Why are church plants so effective at reaching new peoples? Here's what I would submit to you. It's because new church plants are relentless for mission from the start. They're out at the coffee shops seeking new people. Uh, Here's an an example of that. Take Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. If anyone knows Tim Keller, the the former pastor there, he's like the patron saint of church planting. So in in 1989, when he first planted Redeemer Church, there was uh, only 1% of New Yorkers attended a gospel teaching church. 25 years later, that number had risen to 5%. 5% of New Yorkers attended a gospel teaching church. And you're thinking, wow, like his church must be humongous, like 10,000 people. But his church only had a couple thousand. So how was there such a, a great growth of new people attending these gospel teaching churches? The difference was that more than double the amount of gospel teaching churches were in the area. So this idea of planting new churches helps to reach more people, helps to reach new people. If maximum impact means decreasing lostness in an area, then we need to multiply by planting more and more and more churches. It's not about getting believers to come back into the church. It's about seeing new people being raised up and sent out and believing this good news, trusting in this good news. All right, here's the last one. It's just the natural rhythm of church life cycles. Um, Being a church that plants churches, like New Life is, being a church that plants churches will help you leave a legacy and not just a memory. Um, Unless Gateway and unless New Life is different than every other church in the history of local churches, there will be one day when we cease to exist. We'll all have kind of the similar story of, of a birth Uh, you know, maybe a growth, a a fruitful season of ministry, a decline, and then a death. And that's nothing to despair over. Because the thought, because the, 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 the fact of having it in your DNA to help to reproduce and to plant new churches will mean that while one day our church and your church will kind of move off the scene, the gospel will continue to move forward. Why do we plant churches? Basically, it's just obedience to Christ. It's obedience to Christ and multiplication ends up creating the most impact. And that's what we want to do. We want to plant churches because we want to make an impact in this world. 
Not because of us, not because we want people to see us, because we want people to see how great God actually is. I said earlier that we have a problem. Um, our vision is outpacing our resources. And I want to kind of invite you guys into this with me. Um, God has given this you know, crazy, crazy big dream to us to see 100 people sent out, leaving, 100 people leaving our church in the next five years. Um, and that's just crazy when, you know, tonight we're going to gather at Lake Junaluska at 5 p.m., and there's probably going to be 25 people. So how do you go from having 25 people to seeing 100 people leave? Well, I'm going to give you kind of three ways that you can help us in that. The first way is to partner with us in prayer. Nothing is going to happen at Gateway Church apart from the Spirit of God moving. And God has kind of ordained this weird way that his will works in, in and through the prayers of his saints. So I covet your prayers. I want you to pray for us. I want you to be on our updates. I want you to see our, our newsletters. I want you to know the points to be praying for. Because I think that God will listen. I think that he's there. I think that he's in control. So help us pray towards that end of seeing this crazy big God dream come to fruition. One, one specific way, too, that you can be praying right now for us is the launch team is coming. We're almost all here, actually. Tomorrow, the last two will be moving uh, into the area. And um, the thing that we've been sharing with them from the very beginning is that transitions always create trauma. Always. No matter if you're moving across town or across the world, transitions create trauma. And we've been using the analogy of repotting a plant. Um, so if you repot a plant, the first thing that it does is wilt. It doesn't grow. It doesn't flourish. It goes through this, through, uh, through this season of, of wilting. And so what I want to ask you is to just pray for the launch team that during this season of wilting, we would grow closer together as a community, that we would rely on one another, that we would pray for one another, that we would truly be a community of people together on mission for God. Pray for that. Pray. It's going to happen. We've already seen some of it happen on the launch team. And so it's, it's coming. So please be praying for that. Here's another way to partner with us. You can partner with us financially. So you guys have been awesome already. Your, your generosity is fueling the mission of what's happening at Gateway. It's what ha what's happening at Myrtle Beach. I've talked to those guys too. It's so incredible that you guys have caught the vision of seeing, of wanting to see God move, not just in your local body, but throughout the region, throughout the states, throughout the world. That's nothing to, be, uh, to think lightly on. That's an incredible thing. That's an incredible miracle. And you guys have leadership here that's kind of pushing you towards that and calling you towards that and, and praying that over you. And so I would just say, be generous with your church. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your talents. Be generous with your treasure. Steward those things well. God has given those to you for a reason. So thank you. Thank you for that. And the last is just partner with us by connecting us to others. I know in a room this size, this close to Waynesville, um, you guys probably know people in Waynesville. You probably have friends who live in Waynesville. You probably have family who live in Waynesville. You probably have crazy aunts and uncles who live in Waynesville. Connect us to them. If they need the good news of Jesus, if they need a local church to be a part of, we would love to chat with them. We would love to sit down with them. We would just love to be with them. So do that. Don't be shy. I, uh, I've been so grateful 
for, for my time here. I just want to end with this one little uh, uh, illustration. So one of the shows I love the most is uh, the BBC show of Sherlock. And at the end, at the end of this series, I'm going to kind of ruin it, um, there comes this moment where uh, someone shoots at Sherlock. But this person steps, steps in front of the bullet, takes the bullet for him. And afterwards, he, he's trying to describe how he felt and, and what he's thinking, and he just says uh, this one kind of tragic quote. He says, in saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It's a currency I don't know how to spend. In saving your life, Jesus has conferred a value on it. Don't waste it by not knowing how to spend it. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are so small. Um, Lord, compared to your greatness, compared to your size, compared to your character, Lord, we are weak, frail, we struggle, we have doubts, we're insecure. But Lord, you call to us, even now, God, you're the light of the world. Shine in our life now. God, we, we pray that our life would be magnifying to you, that we would magnify you and not ourselves. And I pray that, that in our doing, that we remember that it all flows from our being. Lord, I pray that we remember that salt will be salty and lights will be bright so that you get all the glory. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.